Tonight, we're continuing to walk through the book of Isaiah together, and we move into chapter 42. Chapter 42. And uh, tonight, I don't think I'm going to go all the way through the whole chapter. I think I'm going to break it at verse number 17. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 17 tonight. And it's really two main sections. The first section is a servant song. In fact, it's the first servant song in the book of Isaiah. There are a few others that come a little bit later. And then the second part of the passage that we're going to be looking at tonight is a song of praise to the Lord. And so as we begin to look at the first part of this chapter tonight, verses 1 through 9, is the servant of the Lord. And it contains a description of the Lord's servant. And one of the questions and I think really one of the difficulties of interpreting this section of Isaiah, it, beginning in chapter 40 through about chapter 55, is you have several references to the Lord's servant. Some of them give the impression that it's talking about the nation of Israel is the Lord's servant. But some of them, like especially like this one tonight, looks like it's more talking about an individual. So one of the commentators that I was reading suggested that, that one way of thinking about it is um, almost like a pyramid in which the servant idea, that the servant theme can kind of uh, refer to different levels within Israel. And so on the big level, on the bottom, you've got all of Israel. So all of Israel can be referred to in some sense as the Lord's servant, that he has chosen out from among the nations to be his special representative in the world. But then kind of moving up that pyramid a little bit as it narrows, as you go up, uh, we have more uh, a focus on the remnant of the righteous remnant that is seeking to live a life of holiness and justice uh, especially after the captivity and the Lord brings them home. So they can be referred to as the Lord's servants. But then we have a passage like this one tonight where we're talking about, looks like more like just an individual, one specific individual who will come and accomplish a specific mission for the Lord. And, and these that have more of a focus on the individual are probably rightly interpreted as messianic referring to the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. And we'll look at that a little bit more as we walk through this. But one of the books that I was reading suggested that what, we, what you have in chapter 41 to 48 are mostly references to Israel as a whole, as the servant of the Lord. But this one is an exception. But then once you get into chapter 49 to 55, you have more of an emphasis on an individual being the servant. And there's one exception in that one where it refers to all Israel. So this is one of those that, that refers to an individual as being a special servant of the Lord. And so verses 1 through 9 describe the ministry of the servant, and then it describes the Lord and his glory, his attributes, his power in calling this servant to his ministry. So in verses 1 through 4, we see the servant's ministry. Verse 1 says, Here is my servant, whom I uphold, 
my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. So uh, and right away you can see the Lord's special selection of this individual to accomplish his purpose. And this servant is going to come and he is going to rule. And he's going to cause righteousness and justice to begin not only in Jerusalem, but to flow out to the nations. And he is one in whom the Lord will put his spirit. And so as we think about applying this to the Lord Jesus, we can see where in the New Testament, for example, at the baptism of Jesus, that the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus. And literally God puts his spirit on the Lord Jesus throughout his ministry. Uh, we can see the Lord Jesus operating in principles of righteousness and justice and compassion as he walks the, the earth and shows compassion to people and heals people and, and teaches the truth to people and then lays down his life to bring righteousness to his people. But the, the idea of his, of his kingship, of extending this rule of justice and righteousness to the nations probably finds a more future fulfillment in the ultimate kingdom of God. But this is a chosen special servant of the Lord. This says in verse 2 that he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets, which probably has the idea of him being someone who is meek, someone who is, he leads, but he leads not by force. He leads by love. He leads by compassion. He leads by example. As the Lord even as the Lord Jesus himself even says in the Gospels, he says, Come unto me, all you who are burdened down and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, and you'll find rest for your souls. I am meek and lowly of heart, right? Jesus says. So he is he is a meek, calm, peaceful ruler. Verse three says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not stuff out. In faithfulness, he will bring forth justice. And the idea here is probably just the, the Lord's attention to those who are downtrodden, to those who are weak, to, and then probably along the, the same lines of the idea of, as we've seen throughout Isaiah and, and many of the other prophets, where one of the sins of Israel that led to their captivity was their injustice. And the way that the rich would oppress the poor, the, the powerful would oppress the weak. And this, this, is, this is the idea of this special servant of the Lord is going to be one who will have compassion. He will come with compassion for those who are, are broken, to those who need healing, to those who need to be lifted up and caused to stand. And especially those who are on the verge of breaking, he will come with tender care. To those who are on the verge of being snuffed out, he will come with care and revive that flame. So he is someone who will care for his people and bringing forth faithfulness and justice, but in a way that is compassionate and loving and caring toward his people. Verse 4 says, He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teaching, the islands will put their hope. And so you can see... The, the universal dimension of this, that the Lord Jesus' rule in righteousness and justice will ultimately be global, won't it? 
that all nations and all islands will come underneath his rule and underneath his word of his teaching. And then in verses 5 through 9, we see more a description of the power of the Lord himself and his call, his commission of the servant. Verse 5, it says, This is what God, the Lord, says, the creator of the heavens, who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. That Everything there is very clearly understood, isn't it? But it needs to be set within the context of like we looked at last week. The very end of chapter 41, there was the Lord calling out the idols, the false gods, and saying, where were you? Can you tell the end from the beginning? Can you, can you predict the future? Can you even act at all? And here is the Lord saying, I'm the creator. I made everything. I give life to everything that is. Everything that exists, I give breath to people, and, and everyone who walks in the world owes their life to me. And perhaps even this is what Paul had in mind in Acts chapter 17, when he was talking about the unknown God in Athens, and saying, this unknown God that you are ignorant of, he's the one who made heavens and earth. He's the one who gives life and breath to everything that is. And so the Lord is the creator, not the idols. They can't do anything. The Lord is the God who made everything. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness, probably calling of the servant, calling of this special servant for this task. I have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles. And this may very well have to do, uh, may, may point toward the idea of the new covenant that Jeremiah talks about, that Ezekiel talks about, that Jesus says is fulfilled in his life and death and resurrection. And so in this servant will be a covenant with God's people. And that covenant will extend not just to the Jews in Jerusalem or in Judea, but to all the world, to all the the Gentiles as well. Verse 7, he says, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. So here's the idea of, of helping those who are downtrodden, those who are in captivity, those who need healing. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not yield my glory to another or my praise to idols. The Lord has no rivals, does he? He has no rivals, and he will put up with no rivals. He says, no idol, no false god, they will not stand. I, and I alone, am the Lord. That is my name. See, the former things have taken place, and new things I declare. Before they spring into being, I announce them to you. We saw this last week in chapter 41. It's going to be a recurring theme in these chapters from 40 to 48. This is what makes God God. This is what makes the Lord God, is His ability not only to create, but also His ability to declare what is going to happen before it happens. That is what separates Him from these false gods that are nothing. And so He is able to predict the rise of His servant because He is the sovereign Lord. He is able to predict the coming of the Persians and Cyrus, who will send his people back home to Jerusalem. He can say that ahead of time because he's the Lord of history. 
And this is what separates him from the false gods. They can't tell the future. They can't even act or do anything. But the Lord creates and the Lord foreknows the future. He declares it before it ever happens. And then we talked about it a little bit already about who this servant is. And this particular servant song is seems to be more focused on an individual and is likely should be interpreted as messianic. And that is confirmed for us when we get to the New Testament. And we see in Matthew chapter 12, verses 14 through 21, this passage from Isaiah quoted pretty much verbatim and applied to Jesus by Matthew, the gospel writer. And so we have in Matthew 12, the Pharisees are plotting how to kill Jesus. This is right after one of his healings, a healing on a Sabbath day, and they're, they're trying to plot how to kill Jesus. And it says, aware of this, Jesus withdrew from that place, and a large crowd followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. And Matthew says this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. And he quotes this passage. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out, till he has brought justice through to victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. And so that is pretty much a verbatim quotation from Isaiah 42. And Matthew says, this is Jesus. This servant is Jesus. And we'll see some of these other servant songs in Isaiah 2. Probably the most famous of them is Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. And we find in Acts chapter 8, where this Ethiopian has the scroll of Isaiah, and he's reading that passage in Isaiah 53, and he says, who is this talking about? And Acts chapter 8 says that Philip climbed up in his chariot and began to teach to him Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment of these servant songs. And especially here, chapter 42 is confirmed for us in Matthew 12. So this is Jesus. He is the one who will come and heal, the one who will come and teach, the one who will come and reign and rule and extend justice to the world. Then we see a song of praise to the Lord in verses 10 through 12. This is a new song of praise to the Lord. Verse 10 says, sing to the Lord a new song. His praise from the ends of the earth. You who, who go down to the sea and all that is in it, you islands and all who live in them. This is very psalm-like, isn't it? This You could take Isaiah 42 verses 10 through 12, and it looks like it came out of Psalm 150 or Psalm you know, 135, somewhere in there. And this is just a psalm of praise. And it's praising the Lord for who he is, for his greatness. And notice the, the extension of who is called upon to sing this song of praise. It very much fits with what the ministry of this servant will be in extending righteousness and justice to the world. And so this psalm of praise is calling on the world to give praise to God. All the, all the islands, all the, from all the ends of the earth, all those who go down to the sea. In other words, everybody give praise and glory to God. Let the wilderness and its towns raise their voices. Let the settlements where Kedar lives rejoice. Let the people of Salah sing for joy. Let them shout from the mountaintops. And the reason why Kedar and Silah are mentioned specifically here is because they're more barren areas. 
and it, it fits with the idea of wilderness. And so the idea of, of places that are barren or dry, not fertile, but they will be turned into places of joy and singing and rejoicing because of the Lord. Let them shout from the mountaintops. Let them give glory to the Lord and proclaim his praise in the islands. Again, extending the, the word of the Lord and the glory of the Lord across the world. And then we see in the last few verses, verses 13 through 17, that the Lord is a warrior, a mighty man of war. It describes him in verses 13 through 17. The Lord will march out like a champion, like a warrior. He will stir up his zeal with a shout. He will raise the battle cry and will triumph over his enemies. Now, again, think about the situation of the people of Judah, the Israelites at this time. This is Isaiah looking forward. The people of Judah have just dealt with the Assyrian might and power. They've just been surrounded by Assyria, but God has repelled them. But now Isaiah is predicting a time in which the Lord's people will go into captivity. And they will be judged. They will be punished by the Lord and be sent into captivity. But this right here, declaration of the Lord's might and his power as a warrior, is a reminder to them that the Lord has not forgotten them and that he will come and fight for their cause. When, when it is his will and in his timing to rescue his people and to defeat their enemies, he will come with power. He will come as the mighty Lord that he is. So he will come with a, a, a battle cry and, and with triumph over his enemies. For a long time, I have kept silent. I have been quiet and held myself back. But now, like a woman in childbirth, I cry out, I gasp and pant. And this is just the idea of raising the war cry, raising the shout. I will lay waste the mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn rivers into islands and dry up the pools. I will lead the blind by ways they have not known. Along unfamiliar paths, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness into light before them and make the rough places smooth. These are the things that I will do. I will not forsake them. So this is the Lord. In these verses, basically it's saying the Lord has been silent. He's been quiet. He's not been acting on behalf of his people, at least not visibly. And he has, he has allowed them to be taken captive. And it seems like their enemies are triumphing over them. But there is going to come a time when the Lord will raise his voice in shout, in victory, in triumph. And he will come and he will defeat the enemies of Israel. He'll defeat the Babylons and he'll use the Persians to do it. And so he'll defeat the Babylons and he will create a smooth, straight path for his people to come back home to Jerusalem. I have not forsaken them, this says. But those who trust in idols, who say to images, you are our gods, will be turned back in utter shame. Just a final reminder that the Lord is going to rescue his people, but the idea of rescuing them is not just to rescue them physically, but to rescue them, rescue their hearts as well. And so that when he brings them back home, when, when they come back as the remnant, they come back not just as survivors, but they come back as a spiritual remnant who, whose hearts are turned toward the Lord. 
those who have forsaken idols. And interestingly enough, when the Israelite people get back from captivity, idolatry is really no longer an issue for the Israelite people, at least in terms of the ancient Near Eastern idolatry, the Canaanites, the Babylonians, the Egyptian, all that idolatry that that had been a, a snare for them all the way throughout their history and led to their captivity. After that, in the days of Malachi, Haggai, Zechariah, Nehemiah, Ezra, they have become firmly monotheistic in serving the Lord. Now, that didn't mean they were perfect. It didn't mean that they didn't have idols of the heart. But God, through this captivity, did eradicate idolatry from the land. And that was, that was his purpose, was to send them into captivity. It was chastening. It was punishment. But he had not forsaken them. He was going to come as a mighty warrior in their defense. But also in rescuing them, he wanted to deliver their hearts from their allegiance to false gods, to idolatry. He wanted to bring them back as a spiritual people, devoted to the Lord. And there are clearly lessons there for us. In terms of the earlier part of the passage of the Messiah, we can see Jesus in his compassion. We can see him in his care for his people. We can see him when we stumble and fall. He raises us up. When we're discouraged, he seeks to encourage us through his word and through his abiding spirit. And we have the hope of what the Lord Jesus will do in his second return. As we have that hope, we're looking forward to that. When, when you know, right now we look around at the world and it doesn't seem like things are very just. It doesn't seem like there's a whole lot of righteousness in the world right now. But there will be when Jesus returns. When Jesus comes back, he will extend that righteousness and justice to the world. It will be a universal kingdom of peace. And then the second part of the passage, just a reminder to us that because of the Lord's ministry, the Lord Jesus' ministry for us, we should respond in praise. We should respond in praise and worship and devotion to the Lord our God, who, ha- who like a warrior has delivered us from our bondage to sin and enslavement and has freed us and rescued us and has turned our hearts away from idols to serve the living God. And so I hope that this is encouraging to you. I hope it's, it's helpful to just be reminded of, of these prophecies of the Messiah hundreds of years before he came. Isaiah was talking about the coming of Jesus and what his ministry would be like when he would come. And then when Jesus came, he fulfilled it to the T. He fulfilled it. And he lived out this ministry as a servant of the Lord. And so I hope this is encouraging to you. I hope the hope that we have for the future in Jesus' return is, in, is an encouragement and an incentive to abide in the faith and to renew our, our zeal for the Lord each and every day.